Thank you for joining ReachMD XM157 for this month's special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry. There are over two dozen antidepressants approved for use in the United States. These are largely safe and effective medicines, but how do you know which one is right for any given patient? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bodhi Dunlop. Dr. Dunlop is the director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Dunlop's primary research interests are in the area of neurobiology and treatment response of major depression and anxiety disorders. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Leslie. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Dunlop, how do most clinicians currently decide which antidepressant to give to any given patient? I think, you know, the message is out there that all the antidepressants have about equal efficacy, getting about two-thirds of people better and one-third of people completely well with treatment. So people don't really choose based on the effectiveness of the medicine. I think most doctors get comfortable with a certain antidepressant, usually an SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and that's what they choose. There are other factors, though, that go into certain situations. I mean, availability of the treatment, do they have samples or is it on the formulary? But perhaps the greatest deciding factor for most docs is side effects. You know, patients will say, I don't want it to make me gain weight. I don't want it to make me sleepy. I don't want it to interfere with my sexual function. Those factors commonly drive what people use to choose, although I think there are others that they could use that might also be useful for individual patients. I agree. My experience is the same, that unfortunately the sample supply seems to be a large determinant. And then there's also something I call kind of the rule of fives, and that it seems like so much of what we do in clinical practice is based on our first five patients on any given treatment. And if it went well, we decide we like it. And if it didn't go so well, you know, we may not use it again, even though, of course, uh, statistically, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, well, but it makes sense how the brain learns things. You know, those first experiences are the most powerful for learning, and I think that's very common. I think you're right. But I think in choosing an antidepressant, there are other factors that primary care doctors could consider, and psychiatrists do routinely consider. And perhaps most importantly would be, is there a comorbid or also present anxiety disorder? In choosing an antidepressant for a patient, if they also have, in addition to their depression, they also have anxiety you really need an agent that's going to be acting on serotonin systems, so an SSRI or an SNRI. As Wellbutrin and Mirtazapine really don't show the same kinds of benefits in anxiety disorders. So screening for anxiety is an important part of getting people better with the first treatment. Mm. And certainly so many of our patients have a mixture of anxiety and depression symptoms. Right, exactly. And I think that's why SSRIs are typically chosen as first line. But when patients don't really have much anxiety, Wellbutrin, bupropion is an appropriate choice, or mirtazapine. I think another factor that can be involved in choosing an antidepressant is the family history. If this is the first time a patient's coming into treatment, you can ask them, has anybody else been treated? What did your sister get better with? Because that's probably the best proxy we have for predicting response at this point, Mm -hmm. because at least there's a shared genetics there. Now, how about another thing that some of us use is just how sedating or activating a medicine is and try to match that with their sleep or their fatigue complaints? Yeah, I think that's commonly done. I don't often do that because the idea is that if the whole syndrome improves, if the depressive syndrome is improving with the treatment, ultimately those things will turn around. But because the efficacy is the same across all of them, and as long as it's not going to induce a side effect that's going to be problematic, you can match sedating aspects or activating aspects to the patient's complaint. 
I'm not sure it adds a great deal, but it's certainly not going to harm the patient. Anything else that you think people should think about when choosing an antidepressant? Well, I think the only other thing is to remember that there's therapy too. (laughs) (laughs) That talk therapy, especially cognitive behavioral therapy, which specifically focuses on addressing the way depressed people think and how that thinking affects their feeling states, is very useful for depression. And uh, it can be done as well as medication or separately from medication. So always remember that if you have a good therapist in the community, referring to them is a reasonable option as well. Now, you're involved in an innovative new study to help predict which patients will respond to a given treatment for depression. Tell us about your work. Yeah, this is the most exciting project I've ever been involved with. This is an NIH center grant, and it's designed to address this exact problem of how do we do a better job of matching a specific treatment to an individual patient? You know, if we take 100 patients and we give them a medication, I said 60 of them will respond, but we don't match up very well who's going to respond and who's not. We can't predict that ahead of time. So the NIH has given us a large grant to study 400 patients who have never been treated before and randomly assign them to one of three treatments to see if we can identify biological and psychological factors that correlate or predict who's going to get better with each treatment. Mm. Now, what three treatment options do they give you? So it's really nice because there's no placebo and there's no experimental medicine. They get either escitalopram, which is Lexapro, duloxetine, which is Cymbalta, and that's a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor as opposed to escitalopram, which is a purely serotonergic drug, or they could get CBT or that cognitive behavioral therapy. And they get each of those treatments for 12 weeks, and it's a random assignment. So there's one of three treatment arms that they could be assigned to. Oh, wow. So actual things that we really use in practice. (laughs) Yes, I mean, exactly. This isn't like an experimental study. This is trying to find factors that predict what gets better. It's not a competing thing of which is a better treatment. It's what's the best treatment for this individual with the biological characteristics that we measure. Now, if you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Bodhi Dunlop. We are discussing predicting antidepressant response. So, Bodhi, what measurements are you looking at? What's kind of the baseline parameter that you're interested in? Or I'm sure there's probably more than one. There's actually four things that we are measuring in people. The first is their brain scan using very high-powered MRI scanning techniques. We look at their blood flow in their brain when they're at rest. We also measure their genetic pattern, and we do an extensive personality assessment. And the fourth thing we do is an assessment of their HPA axis functioning. It's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And looking at their changes in cortisol after receiving dexamethasone and a challenge of that system using corticotropin releasing factor that's injected, the hormone that essentially turns on the HPA axis. And the reason we do that last one is that it really does seem to be a very strong emerging predictor of who can get better and who doesn't get better with antidepressant treatment. So between those four measures, genetics, brain imaging, personality, and HPA axis assessment, we hope to develop a nice little package that we could use to better match patients to treatments. What kind of information? I'm curious about the blood flow and the MRI. How might that change? It's interesting. Studies that have been done primarily within patients, the classic finding is what's called hypofrontality or reduced metabolic activity in the prefrontal cortex, that part of our brain where we do our thinking and problem solving. Classically, that's been shown in people in the hospital in depression to be low. When we study people who are outpatients, we see more of a mixture of people who are low prefrontally and people who have excessive or higher than normal levels of activity 
in the prefrontal cortex that may correlate with worry or a general state of activation or overactivation. So what we look for is to see, it's certainly obviously more than just the prefrontal cortex, but we look to see how these patterns of connection change over time with treatment. So we do the MRI at before they start and then after two weeks of treatment to see if we can get a predictor, yes, this treatment is going to make these changes or not. As you described the changes in prefrontal cortex, is that something we could use even diagnostically to try to figure out who might be bipolar or unipolar? Well, there's interest in doing that. We're certainly not there yet. We all want that to be the case, to do the scan and get the diagnosis because we so wish to have concrete factors for our illnesses in psychiatry, but we're not there yet. We'll have to see how well we can increase the reproducibility and reliability of these results. But yes, ultimately, maybe we'll be able to identify a network of activation that suggests this person has a bipolar form of depression or a unipolar major depression but we're certainly not there yet. Mm. Okay, so then the patients have all this done at baseline, and then they get either Lexapro, Cymbalta, or cognitive behavioral therapy for 12 weeks. And then how are you deciding who responds? By what measures? Well, we use the usual measures of depression, so the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale and the Montgomery Asperger Depression Rating Scale. These are standard interview techniques to see who's improved and who's not. We also ask them about their functioning in their life as well. Then after the 12 weeks, they're done, or do they get switched to another treatment? Currently, they're done, but uh, we're hoping that the NIH will fund a two-year extension where we can treat people for another year beyond that first 12 weeks. And if they remitted, if they're completely better, they would just stay on their treatment. And then if they did not get better, they would get crossed over to receive either talk therapy if they got medicine or they would receive escitalopram if they got talk therapy the first time around. This will be a tremendous opportunity because we'll be able to offer treatment for a year in which we can give people, you know, well-standardized, fully efficacious treatments at absolutely no cost to them. If any doctors are out there and are interested in referring, they can just have the patient call 404-778-6663, and that's our direct line in. There's no cost and there's no commitment. They'll get a free psychiatric evaluation, at least, for coming in. So they have to be somewhat near Atlanta, though. Yeah, well, of course. Yes, I know that you can go. Your show is nationwide here, but uh, yeah, if they're in the Atlanta area, this could be a benefit to patients, especially if they're underinsured or underinsured. Oh, yeah, what a great study to be involved with. Just the baseline measurements. What an enormous amount of information. Yeah, we're going to have a huge data set. It's very exciting. Yeah. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your prediction of the outcome of the study? Well, I mean, I think that's part of the excitement here is that we don't know, but I think one of the safe things we can say is that genetics are going to be important and that we're going to be able to identify certain genetic inheritance patterns that predict either inability to tolerate one of the medicines or response to one of the medicines. I think another thing we're going to find is that people with what I call the beatdown depression, that's uh, not a scientific term mm-hmm. at all, but people who have chronic stressors in their life that are really challenging, poverty, disrupted family, unemployment, family members in trouble with the law, that kind of beatdown where there's so little to actually enjoy in their life where every day is a struggle, I think we're going to find that those folks really do need some type of talk therapy in order to improve. And then I do think we're going to find the brain scan findings, as I mentioned, to be important in terms of the greater the degree of activation in a part of the prefrontal cortex called the subgenual cingulate, that midline structure just below the corpus callosum. If the greater the activity in that area at baseline, the less likely you're going to be able to respond to talk therapy alone. Mm-hmm. That you're going to need more help suppressing this key area for emotion in order to recover. 
So that's what I think, but we'll see what happens. We'll see. When will this all be finished? Well, we're continuing to recruit for another four years. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, we're trying to get 400 patients in here. So it's a long-term thing, and hopefully in early 2012, we'll have some results out there. Well, we'll have to bring you back. (laughs) I'd love to be back. I hope we'll have something exciting to talk about. I I think we will. I'm pretty sure we will. Hopefully you'll be back before then. That's a little bit long (laughs) to wait. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. That was my pleasure. We've been discussing the latest research predicting antidepressant response with our guest, Dr. Bodie Dunlop from Emory's School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening to this month's special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals.